0: So this past December, I met a guy named John Drage. Uh John's a collegiate pastor in Missouri, and he's in his 50s. He's, like, super fit. He runs, like, Ironmans on the weekends uh, just for fun. And I met him because he came to a workshop that I was teaching on burnout. So he had been pushing really hard, and actually his wife had been getting concerned about his physical health because he was just getting increasingly exhausted. One of the symptoms that he was having were these reoccurring headaches. Here's John.
1: I go to the doctor and he says, I think these are migraines, but migraines normally don't come on somebody. You don't get them when you're 50. I'm 52, but he thinks they're migraines. So he gives me some migraine medicine and we start, you know, taking that. And that helps a little bit.
0: But not enough. Because just a couple weeks later, John ends up getting what he calls the headache of his
1: life. I'm that guy that works really hard even when he's sick. The headache isn't going to slow me down. This thing put me on my chair in my living room.
0: So John begins to realize this is way more serious than just like a byproduct of burnout. So John goes back to the doctor.
1: Then the doctor said, let's just do an MRI and schedule one for 7 o'clock in the evening. And within, you know, 15 minutes of leaving there, you know, the MRI people called the doctor and the doctor called me from his house. So John, this is really bad. You got a big brain tumor. This thing's really big. It was about the size of my fist.
2: Holy cow, he's got a brain tumor the size of his fist?
0: Yeah, it's, it's really bad.
2: Like, that's, that could kill you,
0: right? Well, at that point, they actually they don't know. And so they actually scheduled John for surgery to remove the tumor. And everyone's relief. Like, the surgery goes really well. And they're able to remove the tumor. No problems. Everything went great. So everything's OK then, right? Well, I wouldn't say that things were okay, because as John was recovering from the surgery in his hospital room, the doctor actually came in.
1: He comes in and says it's glioblastoma, which is the worst kind of brain cancer you can have.
2: Wait, so the, it was cancerous. The tumor was cancerous.
0: Yeah, so glioblastoma, it's the deadliest form of brain cancer. It has no cure. It is fatal.
1: It's terminal. Median life expectancy is 18 to 20 months from diagnosis. Then the five-year survival rate is 10 percent and the 10-year survival rate is 2 percent. And we're crushed.
0: So at this point, like, there's no guarantee how long John is going to live. The only thing at this point that's guaranteed is that John is going to die. And it's going to be sooner than later.
1: Am I scared? Heck yeah. What's it going to be like to die? I don't know. Nobody's ever told me.
0: You're listening to the Love Thy Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse
2: Eubanks. And I'm Rachel Zabo. Every episode, we hear stories of social justice and Christian community.
0: Today's episode is where the gospel meets end of life. Death is universal. It affects all of us. We lose loved ones, and eventually we'll all experience it ourselves.
2: Yeah, so today we're gonna hear three different stories, and actually all of these stories are about people who experience death prematurely. You know, if you hear the phrase end of life, a lot of people will think, oh, this is an elderly person. They've lived to a ripe old age, and now they're thinking about their legacy and what they're going to leave behind. But those aren't the stories we're exploring today. These are stories of what happens when death comes unexpectedly.
0: Is there a good and right way to deal with it? How do we help people who are grieving? And what difference does our Christian faith make when death comes crashing into our world? Welcome to our quarter of the Urban Universe. So every year, Chapman University does this survey of American fears. They want to know what are Americans most afraid of. Uh, what do you think is on the list of Americans' top 10 fears? Clowns. <laughs> no, no, not clowns. Oh, no, but... that's
2: on the list of my top 10 fears. Yeah, well, that would make my list, too. Yeah. No, but seriously, though, uh, I think terrorism. Is terrorism on there? Oh That's a good
0: guess. So terrorism actually was not on there.
2: Surprising.
0: Yeah. In 2018, some people said that they were afraid of things like corrupt politicians or mm. not having enough money. Yeah. But among the top 10 fears is the fear of death. So more than half, 57 percent of all Americans said that they fear loved ones dying.
2: That makes sense. But that's interesting. They're they're not afraid of their death.
0: Yeah, not themselves, but people around them that they love dying.
2: Well, and that's actually an unfortunate fear to have because the reality is that will eventually happen. You know, I found this statistic that every day in the United States, about 7,452 people die. To put that another way, that's one death every 12 seconds.
0: Which does sound kind of morbid, you know. But if we think about it long enough, you know, death actually creates a paradox for Christians. What do you mean? Well, on the one hand, like, death is incredibly sad and painful and terrible. But then on the other hand, as Christians, it's also the thing that gives way to eternal life. I mean, there's a time coming where we won't experience death anymore.
2: Oh, I see. And so the paradox would be, how can both of these things be true? How do we respond to death when it brings both incredible sorrow, but also incredible hope at the same time?
0: Yeah. I mean, so it begs the question, like, what do we do as Christians when death and loss enter our lives. And God doesn't leave us to figure it out on our own because we have a savior who's very acquainted with death. In the Gospel of John, Jesus and his disciples come to the town of Bethany, where his friend Lazarus has been dead for four days.
2: Well, and he wasn't just friends with Lazarus. He was also friends with his sisters, Mary and Martha, too.
0: And when he comes to see them, both Mary and Martha give Jesus the same response. They each say to him, Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died.
2: And that phrase can be taken kind of two ways. You know, It could be said as a trusting statement. You know, Lord, I believe your presence brings life. If you had been here, there would be life. But since you were absent, there's not. Or it could also be accusatory, you know, Lord, where were you when we needed you? If you had been here, this wouldn't be happening.
0: Yeah, like this is like one of those times you really wish the Bible just came with emojis. Right. Um, So we don't know for sure how Martha or Mary meant the statement, but based on context, it would seem that Martha was speaking out of duty and Mary out of emotion. Perhaps Martha was focused on saying the right things and Mary on being authentic.
2: Yeah, but regardless which way they meant it, I love that this story is in the Bible because it shows us an important reality that death impacts each of us differently. Yes, we're all impacted by death, but the way it impacts us can look different.
0: Okay, well, let's talk about that. Because in our stories today, death shows up in a bunch of different ways. So the first story we heard was about my friend John Dragi and his terminal cancer diagnosis. So the diagnosis showed up suddenly, while death was like this looming thing that's gonna come eventually. And we're gonna return to John's story towards the end of the episode. But other times, it's not the diagnosis, but death itself that shows up suddenly. Okay, so you know Drayquan, right?
2: Oh, Drayquan, yeah, he was your assistant in the office for a while.
0: Yep, so Drayquan was my personal assistant here in the office. He is currently a part of Love Thy Neighborhood. But his background is that he's from the inner city, from the South. And I say that to say, like, it was a neighborhood that was deeply impacted by poverty and violence.
2: It was a rough neighborhood.
0: Yeah, it was just a tough neighborhood. Like, it was the kind of neighborhood where, like, you would hear gunshots. And it was very common for people to have friends and family members that would get locked up. In fact, when Draquan was just 10 years old, his older brother was actually locked up and sent to prison. And that was hard for Drayquan because he had had a really good relationship with his brother. And now, fast forward 10 more years, so Drayquan's now 20, and his brother's finally getting released. Here's But well,
3: In my mind, I'm thinking like, man, my brother's about to get out, and he's about to be this wonderful person that I, that I remember at 10 years old.
0: Okay, so for clarity's sake, let's just call his brother Tavon. That's actually not his real name, but we'll call him that. So once Tavon came home, Draquan could tell that he was not the guy that he remembered from 10 years ago.
3: I think at that moment, I realized how much prison does what prison do to a human mind. You're not going to come out the same person that you were when you went in. You're just not.
0: And there's a certain level of grief for Drayquan at this moment because Tavon isn't the person that he remembers from 10 years ago. But he's still hopeful because at least his brother is out. So now there's a chance that they can bond and become friends again. But then, late one night, all that changed.
3: Around 12, 1201, 12 I'm sitting at the house by myself. I started those off, and I get a phone call.
0: So it's like the middle of the night, the phone rings, the calls from an unknown phone number. And probably like a lot of us, like, you know, you get a phone call, it's from somebody you don't know, you ignore it. Like, you don't answer it. But Dre said there was just something inside of him that said, I need to pick up the phone.
3: So I answered it and it was my auntie.
0: Now, Dre says normally, like, his auntie is really jovial, like, she loves to joke a lot and cut up. But something was different this time.
3: She was, like, just trembling over words, like she had something to say, but she didn't want to say it to me. So she gave the phone to my uncle. You know, he tells me, like, man, you know, call your mom. I'm like, man, why are you telling me to call my mom? Like, what's going on? Nobody telling me what's happening.
0: And then finally, like, his uncle gets the words out. And he says that they don't know all the details yet. But Tavon was at the dollar store. Someone thought that he was trying to steal something. There was an altercation between him and the clerk. Shots were fired, and Tavon was dead.
2: Man, that's the phone call we all hope we'll never get.
0: Yeah. I mean, in an instant, your world goes from, like, normal to chaotic. It's, like,
3: turns upside down. So immediately, it was just, like, rage. It was, like, hurt. So I'm yelling. I'm I'm trying my best not to break things in the house. I'm just angry. and I'm by myself, so I feel like I'm alone. Dracoan needed
0: someone to be there with him in the chaos. And so he calls up his mentor and he says he needs to come over.
3: So I get to his house and, you know, I'm pacing back and forth in the middle of the street. I mean, it's like three in the morning and I'm pacing back and forth, back and forth and saying like, man, how am I about to tell my mom? So his mentor
0: suggests that before they do anything that they need to confirm the information first. Like maybe there's a chance that everything is fine and that. And that's
2: not what happened.
0: That's not what happened. So they hop in his mentor's car in search of a police officer.
3: You go around the hood and most of the time you see a police officer every two minutes. But this time for some reason it took us 30 minutes to find a police officer. And even at the time that we find one, it was like we had to be mindful, you know, so as we try to flag the police officer down, we're trying to make sure like he don't think that we're a threat either.
0: Yeah, and when Dre was telling me about this part of the story, it, like, it broke my heart because the reality is, like, Dre's also thinking, like, if it is true that my brother's dead, I don't want my mom to lose two sons tonight. Like, he could get shot. And so he has to be so particular about how he approaches the officer.
3: So as we're flagging the police down, we're flashing our lights, you know, but we got our hands outside the window to let them know, like, hey, we need help.
0: So Drequan Kwan and his mentor, they go up, they talk to the police officer, The police officer gets on his scanner, and he confirms for them, yes, there was a shooting at the store. Yes, it was fatal. And yes, it was Tavon. So Drayquan's mom still didn't know. And so the police officer calls the detective and says that they'll go meet Drayquan and his mentor at his
3: mom's house. And I remember as we pulled up to the house, the detective pulled up in front of us, and a police officer behind us and me and my mentor in the same car right in the middle. And I remember my mentor asking me, like, are you going to get out? And I was like, you know, I think I just need to sit here for a little bit, you know.
0: So Draquan's sitting in the car. He's in shock. It's the middle of the night. He's totally fatigued. He waits in the car while everyone else gets out to go tell his mom. And as he was telling me the story, Draquan says that he remembers it just like it was a scene from a movie.
3: And he walks up, the detective, my mentor, and the police officer walked up this little, like, driveway at the same time. You know, they walk up the steps at the same time, they make it to the door at the same time. So he knocks on the door, and I can see when my mom opened the door, and I see the police officer say, you know, Mr. Jackson, your son was killed a couple hours ago, and I can just see my mom just drop to the ground. So I remember just running up to the door and, you know, they had carried my mom to the couch and, you know, I hugged her, you know, and, you know, we both cried and, yeah.
0: And so after Tavon died, they had a funeral for him.
3: I can't really remember it because I had my eyes closed most of the time. The funeral came and I had my head down the whole time and, you know, it was the... The saddest funeral, just like I seen him the day before. Yeah.
0: And Draquan didn't really know what to do with everything that he'd experienced. Like, I don't even, I didn't even know what to do as he was telling me the story. I'm not sure how to respond. Like, Draquan is the one who lived through it. And even he, he didn't know how to respond. So he was like, I'm just going to go back to my routine.
3: I went to work. That's how I knew I wasn't allowing myself to process. I went to work two days after my brother was killed. I went back to work. So that's how I knew I wasn't, I had a real problem with processing things.
2: Yeah, but like, how's he supposed to know how to handle this in a healthy way? I mean, you said he's what, like 20 at this point? I mean, this would be hard for any person to deal with, let alone someone so young.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's sad because there's actually been studies that show that people in low-income, inner-city neighborhoods experience higher-than-average rates of trauma. And as a result, conditions such as PTSD can be more common in these neighborhoods because people in these neighborhoods often don't have the resources to help people navigate through trauma.
2: Okay, so then, but what is a good way to deal with it? Like, obviously, him going back to work two days after his brother was shot isn't a healthy thing to do, but what is healthy? Well,
0: to help answer that, I sat down with this guy.
4: When we do feel the grief, we, we want to shut it off. And we shut it off because it's not making sense in our brains. Coming
2: up, how to grieve well. We'll be right back. Hey, Rachel here. So we recently asked some of our alumni, can you tell us how serving with Love Thy Neighborhood has made an impact on your life long term? And I'd like to share one of those testimonies with you. This is Joseph Williams. He's now a pharmacist in Charleston, West Virginia. And here's what he had to say about serving with Love Thy Neighborhood.
4: LTN really taught me service. Uh, It was just great to see other individuals the same age as me with a heart of service, um, serving individuals that may be less fortunate than than we're used to and people that grew up differently than we have.
2: If you want to find your social justice internship supported by Christian Community, head over to lovethyneighborhood.org and apply today.
0: You're listening to the Love That Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks.
2: And I'm Rachel Zabo. Today's episode, where the gospel meets end of life.
0: We just heard the story of Draquan and the sudden loss of his brother. And with loss comes grief. But what is grief? And how should we handle it? Grief in itself, it's pretty
4: complex.
0: So this is James Santos. He's a corporate chaplain. So he spends his days walking alongside people who are
4: experiencing loss and grief. The primary role, I think, of sadness, grief or loss, it's a signal to say to slow down. It's to help us slow down and not speed up and try to like fix it or get over it.
0: So I asked James, you know, what does it look like for someone to grieve well?
4: There's the basic five stages of grief, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance.
2: Okay, yeah, I've heard grief referred to before as like stages you go through. Right, like if you Google
0: how to grieve, you know, these five stages are going to come up. But James says actually that's not a good way to look at it.
4: I think stages is kind of a misnomer because grief, I think, is like a, a cauldron, like a cauldron of emotions. You know, when someone grieves, it's not as clean and sterile. It's more of a wave, kind of waves. That's the picture that comes to mind.
0: Yeah, and here's why waves might be better language than stages. So the five stages of grief, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance... They were developed by psychiatrist Elizabeth Kubler-Ross. So Kubler-Ross works with patients diagnosed with terminal illnesses, and she noticed patterns and similarities in how these patients dealt with the news. And out of that, she developed the five stages.
2: Oh, so these are like stages of grief for someone with a terminal illness. It's not like a universal grief formula for everyone. Exactly. So you may experience
0: one or more of these things, or you may not. So what can we universally apply to the grieving process? Again, here's James Santos.
4: I have my alliteration. I said if, if people are telling their stories, so that's the first T, and tears are present, and then time are great ways to see if someone is grieving well. You know, some people will say, well, time heals all wounds. You'll hear that. I, I say, well, time is part of that, But time in itself does not heal wounds. It's what they do with their talk or their telling and with their tears. Then time will heal old wounds. That's how I say it.
2: Okay, so he's got three T's, time, telling stories, and tears. I like that. Yeah, it's helpful. Yeah, I think that's really good. Because the reality is the way for me to grieve may not be the same way that you're going to grieve. Like we saw that in the Gospel of John with Martha and Mary and so I think it would be helpful to also distinguish between types of grief. You know, for instance, Drequan experienced grief that comes after a death has happened, but there's also grief that can come while there's still life. So actually, can I share a story with you? Yeah, please. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so this is what a guy named Blake Maddox experienced when his wife was diagnosed with terminal colon cancer.
5: I felt it for two years when nobody else did. You know, everybody saw her alive.
2: So this is Blake, and it was right after the birth of their first child that his wife, Jenna, was diagnosed. And even though at the time of diagnosis, Jenna was still alive and could go on to live several more years, Blake says that moment was when the grieving process started for him.
5: Nobody else felt the effects of her imminent death. I felt the death at the beginning, and I felt it every single solitary day it's almost an impossibility to know how to how to react, you know, without stuffing, and it was impossible because I knew that I had life beyond this, and I knew she didn't.
2: So, you know, both Jenna and Blake, they're people of strong faith, and they're actually a part of our church community. And as soon as the church got news of the diagnosis, everyone started praying for Jenna. Like, there was even this... Hashtag that went around on social media. Hashtag
0: p 4 j P4J, yes.
2: Pray for Jenna. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I
0: mean, it's natural. When tragedy comes, you know, we look at the scriptures and we see, like, God intervenes often. And so we're like, God, intervene. Like, do something miraculous.
2: Yeah, and in a way, God did. Because, you know, as the cancer took over more and more of her body and Jenna became sicker and sicker, her faith actually grew stronger and stronger. So here's part of a post that Jenna wrote during that time.
5: So she said, several of my friends have shared their one word for 2017. Like what the word is going to be. And and I've been thinking and praying about what it is I need to be reminded of every day, every moment. The word I keep coming back to is trust. Specifically trust in the Lord. So she says, I give lip service to the word often but functionally. When it comes to my own circumstances, I tend to freak out in fear and anxiety. And I know my God has better for me than that.
2: Yeah, and like many of us think, like, that's what we're supposed to do. When sorrow or tragedy comes, we're supposed to accept what God has brought us and not complain. But for Blake, there was this huge gap between how he thought he should feel and how he actually felt.
5: I've, like, seen what it looks like to trust and seeing God provide when I don't deserve it, but I was just, I was also just, just annoyed at him for making this happen. You know, I was just like, you put me in a really bad spot. Cause like, I know my wife is going to die. I'm not going to have very long with her. And also I have a newborn that I have to take care of and that I have to plan life out with right now. Like I have life beyond this. Like this is unfair. You know, it's moments I wish I didn't have a daughter not because I didn't want her, but because I would have rather been able to just sit and not have to take care of two people, you know, where I could just sit with my wife and not have to worry about where my daughter's at.
0: Yeah, I mean, and I, I can appreciate what Blake's saying here. I can appreciate his honesty. I mean, this is the reality of what anybody in his circumstance would feel and think. I mean, it's not pretty.
2: Yeah, somehow we think if we express those things, that makes us a bad Christian.
0: But in fact, James Santos suggests that there's actually space for these darker emotions.
4: In a time of sadness, I don't know. That's where you want to, like, you know, dot your theological I's and cross your theological T's. I think there's a place of that, like, way down the road. But, you know, at the moment when someone is being raw with their emotions, I think God invites these pre-reflective outbursts.
0: Yeah, I mean I think if you look at the book of Psalms, I mean, it's full of pre-reflective outbursts, oh, you know? totally. I mean, there's all these moments in there where it's like very clear that the psalmist is just like I'm not worried about correct theology right now, like I am just I'm giving it all to God. I'm living totally transparently, vulnerably before God. Mm-hmm.
4: I think people can have this more performance, you know, orientation with grief. And I, I think if you try to put pressure on how and performance and grief it typically doesn't bode well
2: eventually all the medications that Jenna was taking and the treatments that she was getting they made her functionally like a zombie like she was asleep more hours than she was awake and it was very clear like the end is coming
5: it was like an old person nearing the end you know you just go downhill your body starts shutting down
2: And so knowing that the end was coming, Blake and the rest of Jenna's family wanted to have one last time to spend together as a family. So they rented a beach house in South Carolina. They were going to spend a week hanging out together near the beach.
0: Oh, that's great. Like, so was it a good experience?
2: Well, actually, just a couple days in, Jenna declined so rapidly that she needed to be rushed to a hospital to be put in hospice care. So Blake made an arrangement to get Jenna on an emergency flight back home to get her into the hospital and he would drive back with their daughter in the car. But when he was on the road driving back, he got a phone call from the doctors. Jenna had made it to the hospital, but she was in so much pain that they wanted to put her in a medically induced coma.
5: And that she'll probably never wake up from again, you know, so I had to make that choice being away from her.
2: So by the time Blake made it to the hospital, Jenna was already in the coma. And not long after that, she passed away.
5: And so I uh, just never got a, like never got like the proper goodbye, you know. Her dying wasn't the hardest part. That was the hardest part. I, I have it, I like save it on my computer on the desktop. This picture that I have, it's a live photo of her walking away. I don't know, I've just sat and watched it and watched it. It's funny in the picture, she's smiling. But then you like, it's a live photo. So you, so hold down on it. And you get to see she just like put that smile up just for the picture. And really like she's in like just tremendous amount of pain. Like she just looks miserable. And it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. So that's that's like I don't know. I don't I don't even have words for it. It's just hard. It's just hard.
0: You know, it's interesting with both Draquan and Blake, there's this moment in our conversations with both of them where they just run out of words. There just aren't enough words to describe what's going on inside of them.
2: Yeah, I mean, the reality is death has a profound impact on us because death isn't the way that it's supposed to be. You know, in God's kingdom, there is not death and loss and grief.
0: Yeah, which begs what might be the most common question regarding end of life. Why? I mean, why did all this have to happen? Why now? Why like this? Why couldn't it have been different than this? You know, I asked James Santos like how he answers the why question. And he told me this story.
4: There was a family I was serving in southern Indiana. And I remembered as I I parked and I could see some of the family members, you know, in my rear view mirror, like just kind of outside and smoking. I was like, oh man. You could just tell from just their faces like they've been up all night. So I get out the car, I start heading towards this, this trailer home. And as I was passing them, you could tell they were just kind of like just exhausted, put out.
0: So James goes inside the home and the lady he was there to see was in the living room in a hospital bed. She was dying of lung cancer. She maybe had a week left to live.
4: You know, heard a little bit of her story, and typically when I finish, I'll say, hey, is it would be appropriate for me to pray, in which they allowed me to pray. I step out, and as I was stepping out, the mother of the patient walked towards me. And out came the words, um, chaplain, I just want you to answer this question for me. How could a God, a loving God, take, my third child away from me
0: this mother was a mother of three and she tells james that her other two children had died they had passed away so the woman in the hospital bed in the living room was her only living child left and now that child too is about to die this mom was about to bury the last of all of her children
4: and this was like a couple days before like mother's day and this mom was just like why Can you tell me why?
0: You know, James is a chaplain. And so he has kind of like rehearsed thoughts on what to say when someone asks why. But when he opened his mouth, the answer he gave this mother was not the one that he was expecting.
4: Even as I'm saying this, I'm like, what's going to come out of my mouth? Because it felt like an out-of-body experience. Stay with us.
0: In today's episode of the Love That Neighborhood podcast, we're exploring where the gospel meets end of life. And for many of us, we don't like thinking about death. And for some of us, we even think that we may be able to avoid it longer than everyone else. But what happens when even as powerful as we are, we can't get away from the possibility of death? To explore that topic more, check out our other podcast, Love That Neighborhood Presents The INEA Cast. And specifically, check out episode number 22, about the powerful person, with special guest, counselor Brandon Smith. But it
3: was only in sort of this experience of, I've got nothing, I can't fix this. There's no strength that's gonna be able to change the outcome. Um, The only thing that we can do is just be present with each other and know that what we're feeling uh, is real and that if we try to avoid it, it's not gonna make things better and it's certainly not gonna make anything go away. Check out Love Thy Neighborhood presents the
0: IniaCast by searching for the IniaCast wherever it is that you listen to podcasts or by going to slash iniacast Welcome back to the Love That Neighborhood podcast. I'm Jesse Eubanks.
2: and I'm Rachel Zabo. Today's episode is where the gospel meets end of life. And with end of life, one of the most common questions we can ask is why. And
0: that is the question. That's the question that James Santos gets asked by a mother who's about to bury the last of her three children.
4: How could loving God take my third child away from me? Can you tell me why?
0: But instead of answering her question with his default answer, James suddenly tells the mother this.
4: I want you to know that as you ask this why question, you're not the first person to ask the why question. 2,000 years ago, you know, Jesus also asked the why question, because he said, my God, my God, why did you forsake me? And I said, you know, your why question is a pretty meaningful one. And one even right now, as I'm trying to answer it, is any answer I'm going to say is going to be insufficient. But I want you to know that you're not alone in asking that why question. As a matter of fact, I think that even when Jesus asked his why question 2,000 years ago, yours was part of that. And so whatever anger, or whatever frustration you may have, I want you to know that it is safe. And there's just a silence because there was no answer that I could give that would be satisfactory for that mother. That mother needed from this chaplain Hey, Chapman, can you hear me? Can you like bear this with me? Can you hold space? Will you not judge me? Will you not critique me? Will you not try to correct me, but just kind of hold space for me? And I think if there's anything that grief has taught me is there's this unspoken question. Will you stay with me? Will you identify with me?
0: Jesus suffered and died alone so that we never have to. And part of that means because God is always with us. But it also means because he's brought us into community with one another. As Christians, we have such a unique gift to give when it comes to grief and loss, because we don't need to sugarcoat loss. We can look at it as the truly painful experience that it is, but we also have hope to carry on because we know that loss does not get the final word.
2: Well, but what about someone who is not a believer, like someone who dies and we suspect that they did not know Christ? Like, is there still hope in that scenario?
0: Yeah, I mean, that is that's a tough question. So, you know, the scriptures testify to the fact that there is a place called heaven and there is a place called hell. And we're told that God will judge the living and the dead, like that there is some kind of judgment that takes place. I've I've done a lot of reading on hell. It's probably my number one theological quandary that I've struggled with. And so, um, Jesus is heartbroken over those that are lost, you know? It's not like he's waving his finger going like, "You didn't do what I said." You know, it's a sense of it's with great grief, you know? He he looks over out over Jerusalem and he's like, "How long? Like how long will you be a sheep without a shepherd?" Like it's just a brokenness for the fact that we just chase we chase our own ways, our own ways of doing things. And so God grieves over over those that don't turn to him. And so on this side, you know, we live with confusion and we live with a sense of uncertainty. But I think that in the end, what we can know is this, is that we testify to the belief that God is love. But we don't pit his mercy against his justice. And so whatever's going to happen, it's going to be fully just and fully fair and fully loving. And... I think it's probably a little beyond our understanding.
2: Yeah. And the thing is, we don't need to have, you know, these profound biblical truths to speak to someone when they're going through grief or loss. As James Santos said, the unspoken question of grief is, will you stay with me? It's not, will you comfort me with your words? It's not, will you speak to me some truth? Although those things are good and we should do those things. But the big question is simply, will you be here? Can I count on your presence? And actually, in fact, it was that kind of presence that made a huge difference for Blake. So after Jenna's death, Blake felt a lot of confusion. You know, in one sense, there was relief and gladness that Jenna wasn't in pain anymore, that she finished her race and now got to hear her father say, well done, good and faithful servant, and rest. But on the other hand, You know, Blake had spent the past six years of his life devoted to and around a person that was no longer there with him.
5: It was a new life, you know, life restarted. Life restarted with this weight of pain and stress, but it restarted though, you know?
2: And honestly, for Blake, there was some sense in which he didn't know who he was anymore. You know, who was he supposed to be now in this new life where it was just him and his daughter? And on top of that, you know, the whole church had been praying for Jenna and knew about their situation. And so, in this weird way, Blake had kind of become famous among the church community.
5: I was so exposed for so long, you know, like, how are you doing? How are you feeling? Your wife is about to die. So it's just like, I was so exposed, so, so vulnerable that I really needed shelter. And I just found shelter in creating my own persona of who I was and who I wanted to be. I shaved my head, shaved my face. I needed to look in the mirror and see a different person. You know, I got more tattoos. I bought my dream truck, you know, a big old truck and dumped a bunch of money into it.
0: I mean, this sounds almost like a midlife crisis. I mean, honestly, a little bit like he's like going off the rails.
2: Yeah, I mean, there is a real sense in which grappling with his wife's death stripped Blake down to his core.
5: I threw away religion. The only thing I ever held on to was the was a knowing that God existed. I just let it let it all go. Blake stopped going to
2: church for a while and not like a while as in for a month. Like he stopped going to church for over a year.
0: Yeah, you know, and it's not like I want to sit here and go, like, oh, I recommend doing that. But the truth is like it's a relationship and Sometimes, you know, in life, like, we just wrestle with God for long periods of time. It doesn't mean that the relationship is done. That's just the truth of a real relationship.
2: You know, I asked Blake what was helpful to him in those early months after Jenna's death. And he pointed to some of his pastors and some counselors that were walking with him through that time. But actually, the people he talked about the most were his next door neighbors.
5: I mean, they were just constant, you know, just especially the first six months or first nine months when it was like real hard. We'd go sit on the front porch and smoke cigarettes and drink beer and just hang. And they would listen to me just talk about my crazy ideas of life or what I've learned.
2: So Blake's neighbors were actually Christians and their goal wasn't to correct him. Although there were times when they reminded him of what is true but they just wanted to be a presence for him in this stormy season of life.
0: It reminds me of this word that I heard years ago. And I think, actually, it's, it's a really wonderful word. And it's also a sign that sometimes, like, our English language fails us. So it's an Ethiopian Amharic word. And the word is azunalo. And azunalo means I bodily grieve with you. Like, what you are feeling, I feel it in my bones. I'm entering into deep grief with you. Not just offering condolences, but to enter into someone else's pain by experiencing their pain yourself. And I think as a community, when someone is grieving and they've really suffered something, they don't need just condolences, they need us to enter into that grief and pain with them. And according to James Santos, our presence is actually the best gift that we can give to somebody who's grieving.
4: I don't think you have to have a degree or training or certification. I think if you come just as you are with a caring, loving, empathetic heart and show up, man, that does wonders for people.
2: So today, Blake is back in church. Um, He actually got remarried recently. And I wouldn't say that his grieving process is over, but through his tears, through telling Jenna's story, and with time, Blake is starting to heal.
0: Yeah, you know, in thinking about the power of presence and how much that has helped Blake, and here's James Santos talking about it, you know, thinking about Dre Kwan, Dre has said that the presence of people that love him is actually the thing that's helped him the most, too. You know, sometimes for us to really process things in life, we need a change in our environment. And for Drakequan, he needed to get out of his neighborhood, he needed to get into a new community, out of his survival mode, and slow down some so that he could grieve all this loss that he had experienced. So Draquan actually came to do Love Thy Neighborhood.
3: So, like, first couple of weeks, I still could see myself still isolating myself, still being to myself, not really being intentional.
0: But eventually, Draquan goes on to see that community is exactly what he needed.
3: So I remember having this phone call with my mom, and she was just grieving, you know, and I felt so heavy after that conversation. And I felt like the law was like, hey, now is the time. Because I was trying to be so strong. I was trying not to let people I just met see my emotions to the point where I'm trying to hold in every tear that I can. but just like I couldn't. You know, so I go in the room, all my roommates in one room, I go in the room, and I was just ask them to sit down with me. I just started just sharing how I felt, sharing my emotions, and I just started bawling like <laughs> like I wept, and they were just so encouraging, very encouraging. They prayed for me, and it's crazy because I didn't even know I needed a community, you know, but he showed me, you need these people, you know, like you need people.
0: And, you know, being with people in their grief, like, it's not like a one and done thing. You know, it's for the long haul. Because the reality is, like, Drake is still experiencing grief. You know, we, we changed the name of his brother, and that's for privacy reasons because his death at the dollar store, it's still an open case. And even now, over a year later, his family is still trying to get clear answers as to what exactly happened that night.
3: We still haven't seen a video. No video has been shown You know, it's just like no justice. Like he just died, just another human being that was killed with no one trying to justify it, you know? So that's been really hard.
0: So there's the hardship of losing his brother, but there's the ongoing hardship, too, of having so many unanswered questions. It's like, how do you close this chapter of life when you still have so many unanswered questions?
2: So way back at the beginning of the episode, you told the story about a guy named John Draghi who has terminal brain cancer. And I was just wondering, you know, how is he doing now?
0: Yeah, you know, the last time that I saw John, it was a little bit striking because, you know, as I said, like John was this guy that was like, you know, would do all these incredible competitions on the weekend. And this last time I saw John, like his frame was smaller. So he went from looking more like a bodybuilder to more like a cyclist, you know. He did say that he's working less now, but even though he's working less in his career, he actually still has a lot of stuff to
1: do. You know, we're with the financial advisor. I gotta get the will done. We gotta go talk to the social security people. All that crap has to happen.
0: So I asked John if there was anything that he wanted to make sure he did while he was still alive. And I'm in it in sort of like a bucket list sort of way. But what's amazing is that as he answered, it became apparent He wants to use the last days of his life to show love to those around
1: him. Here's what I have to do. My kids are 25, 23, 22, and 20. They need dad to give them a blessing before he leaves. And that blessing's going to come in something written. It's probably going to come in something spoken that I'm going to hopefully, in a live way, get to say. And it's probably going to come in something that I do in a video i um, probably going to miss my younger son's wedding. He doesn't even have a girlfriend right now. They're not going to get to meet their kids. He needs to hear that dad loves him, and dad thinks he's got what it takes. And even though I may not get to tell him I love him when he gets married, I'm going to say it beforehand, I am given the gift of all this time. I mean, you know, it sounds arrogant, but if we build our life on the rock, when the storms come, it doesn't kill us. You know, Matthew 7, right at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. If we build our life on the rock, the storms come, our house will not crash. But if we built our life on the sand, so this relationship with God that I've built, which has come out in loving people, has been really sweet. And I'm really blessed.
0: When we read about the story of Lazarus and the Gospel of John, it's a bit spoiled for us. Because we know what's going to happen. And Jesus himself knew that in just a few minutes, he would bring Lazarus out of the grave. And yet, after speaking with Martha and Mary, the Bible tells us he became indignant. I mean, that means that he was angry. And then it says that he was troubled. And then he weeps. Even knowing the end of the story, Jesus takes the time to feel these waves of grief. It is right and human to allow ourselves to feel the full weight of death and loss. Because after we do, we then get to experience the joy of Jesus shouting, Lazarus, come out. If you'd like more resources on this topic or to hear past episodes of this podcast, visit our website at lovethyneighborhood.org slash l-t-n-podcast. Special thanks to our interviewees for this episode. John Draghi, Draquan Jackson, James Santos, and Blake Maddox.
2: Our senior producer and host is
0: Jesse Eubanks. Our co-host today is Rachel Zabo, who's also our producer, technical director, editor, and winner of this year's Halloween costume contest.
2: Additional editing by Resonate Recordings.
0: Music for today's episode comes from Lee Rosevere, Poddington Bear, and Blue Dot Sessions. Theme music and commercial music by Murphy DX.
2: Apply for your social justice internship supported by Christian Community by visiting org. Serve for a summer or a year. Grow in your faith and life skills.
0: Which of these was a neighbor to the man in need? The one who showed mercy. Jesus tells us, go and do likewise.